Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. Welcome to another episode. I'm Zachary. I'm Andrew. Today we're going to be talking about probably the biggest question facing every human being. Can we know if God exists? So, Andrew, can we know if God exists? So the first thing that we have to talk about here is what does it mean to know anything? Now, first, there, there's a difference between logical certainty and psychological certainty. So to say that we can know something with logical certainty is like to say that we can prove something mathematically. That's very different than saying I am 100% sure that something exists. That's psychological certainty. Things can be absolutely certain without you believing them to be absolutely certain. And the ability to know something doesn't even depend on you knowing it with absolute certainty. In fact, in life, we know very few things with absolute certainty. For example, I know that I exist, but that's about the only thing that I know with 100% certainty. So if we're not aiming for certainty, then what exactly are we aiming for? So there are things that I say that I know, but I'm not certain about them, but I still know them. So how do we, how would we categorize that? So the standard philosophical definition for knowledge is to have justified true belief. What this means is that you have a belief, that belief corresponds to reality, it's true, and you have good reason to believe that it's true. So if you're just believing something and it just happens to be true by dumb luck, that's not knowledge. Knowledge is when you believe something, it's true, and you have good reason to believe that it's true. Now, there are two different ways that you can justify a belief. The first is there are some things that you don't really need any external evidence for. For example, the fact that I know that I exist, there's nothing that I can provide, no evidence that I can provide that demonstrates that I exist more strongly than just my own experience of my existence. So that's a type of truth that you don't have to have any external justification for. However, most beliefs do require external evidence. For example, if I say there is a building on the campus of Texas A&M called Evans Library, I can't just say that I'm justified in believing that unless I have somehow had evidence for that truth. For example, if I've touched the building, if I've seen it. If I have those types of evidence, then those count as justification for my true belief that Evans Library exists. Okay, so that makes sense to say that we have to believe something. It has to be true, but we have to have good reasons for thinking that it's true. We can't just assert it. That seems to follow for a lot of a lot of our normal experiences, for example, libraries and books and things like that. But we're talking about God, though. How can we know if God, the creator of the universe, this supreme otherworldly type of being, how do we know that that God exists? So broadly speaking, there are two ways that we can know about the existence of God. The first way is revealed truth. That is, God can, in some way, directly tell us. This is what Christians claim the Bible is, that this is a direct revelation from God containing information about who God is. Of course, there are other types of revelation too. God could tell us in a vision. He could just make clouds pop into the sky in the shape of an argument for God's existence, for example. But those are revelations. So those are information basically given directly from God. 
That would be pretty convincing if I saw like a cloud in the sky that said, I am here, you know, written in Aramaic or something like that. But it also seems to me, you talked about scripture. The problem facing us is that if we're going to know that God exists, presumably that's something that anybody and everybody can know. So, for example, how could a person in Russia who is illiterate and doesn't have access to scriptures for some reason, say China, for example, where they have uh, restrictions on the Christian text, how is he supposed to know if, if God exists or not? So in Romans chapter 1, to now give some scripture to defend my position about not needing scripture, um, in Romans chapter 1 it says that, that God's existence and his power and his majesty are evident to everyone through creation. What this means is that we can learn things about God directly through the things that God has created, through nature, through the cosmos, through human beings. We can learn something about God. Now, this in Christian theological circles and apologetics circles is called natural theology. So this is how can we know that God exists without using revealed truth, without using the Bible, without using visions or dreams or God writing in the sky? How can we know something about him just through the natural world? So over the course of time, very intelligent people, philosophers, particularly in, in the West, have constructed very precise and sophisticated arguments using just the facts that are around nature without appealing to scripture or anything like that. But in order to evaluate them, as I'm sure you've probably seen on your Facebook feed from one of your fundamentalist friends, there are a lot of bad arguments out there. And so we need to talk about what makes a good argument. There are three essential components of a good argument. The first one is that it's valid. What this means is that it follows the rules of logic. The premises are arranged such that the conclusion actually follows. The second one is that it's sound. Just because the conclusion follows, if those premises are not true, then it's kind of a pointless argument. So, for example, I can say, if the moon is made of green cheese, then God exists. The moon is made of green cheese, therefore God exists. Well, the moon is not made of green cheese. Even though that is a valid argument, it is not a sound argument. So the first step is checking logical validity, making sure that the argument follows. The second step is fact-checking to ensure that the steps of the argument are correct, that all the assertions that are made are actually true. And then the last component is whether or not it's persuasive. And so this is more of a subjective thing. But there are some types of arguments that they don't really resonate very well, that perhaps they may be true, but they don't actually communicate something relevant. I think a good example of this for most people is an argument that we're going to go into a little bit of detail at the end of this episode, but it's called the ontological argument. Mm -hmm. uh, this argument is logically valid, and many people think that it is sound, that, that it is true, but it has been widely determined to be unpersuasive. Almost no one is persuaded by this argument, and we'll, you'll, you'll see that a little bit more in a few minutes. So let's briefly give an example of a bad argument. And I won't name names, just out of Christian courtesy. But there is one argument in particular that was made popular about 10 years ago, particularly on YouTube. It was a short clip of a uh, famous man from New Zealand who was holding in his hand a banana. And he said, by looking at the banana, that you can infer that God existed. And he said, if you look at a well-designed banana, you'll see at the top there's a little tab that you can open. It's just like a soda pop. And if you look on the side, there are little ridges, five ridges that correspond to the ridges on your finger. And if you look, the wrapper of the banana, it's biodegradable, and the contents are good for eating, and they're also easy on the stomach. Isn't God such a wonderful designer? Now, if you're a Christian, 
You may agree with that, and I certainly agree that yes, God did design bananas, sure, and also allowed humans to develop agriculture to also design our own bananas, as was the dull banana that was in his hand. It was not a natural banana. It was a banana that had been genetically modified so that it was easy to eat and things of that nature. So as you can see, first of all, this is not persuasive, but even more than that, it's not even remotely correct because God, I mean, technically made that banana, but all the features that he was pointing to were features of the excellence of human agriculture. But on top of all that, assuming that's even true, assuming everything he said was true, which most of it isn't, but assuming it was, is that even close to being persuasive? In fact, how in the world are you going to infer from a banana that God exists? Nothing in that argument made any sense. But fortunately, that's not the argument that we're going to be making today. So we're going to give you a smorgasbord very quickly of just a couple of arguments that some of the classical arguments that have been developed over the past thousand years and that are currently still alive and still kicking and uh, being evaluated in peer-reviewed journals in philosophy texts that they have advanced the discussion very much in professional circles. But I think it's important first that we give a little bit of background on what exactly we are arguing for and what the conclusions are. So it's often leveled against people who do apologetics in philosophy, uh, when we're talking about arguments like this, that they don't go far enough. They don't prove every aspect of God's personality and everything that the Bible tells us about who God is. And it is absolutely true that these arguments are very narrow in scope because that's their purpose. Their purpose is to demonstrate one particular thing and do it very well. That's how we are able to make persuasive arguments. So importantly, we're going to talk about an argument that argues that there is a very powerful being that created the universe. We're going to talk about an argument that says that there is a, a being that is the grounding for all of morality. We're going to talk about an argument that is, says there is a being that exists necessarily and is the grounding for all being. And we're going to argue that there is a being that is responsible for the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, when you add all of these things together, you get something that looks like God. He's very powerful. He's morally good. Um, he's necessarily existent. But it doesn't say anything about um, the specific features that we hear about in the Bible. It doesn't say anything about God's relationship to people. It doesn't say anything about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, for example. So we are not trying to prove those things. All we are trying to do is prove what's called bare theism. And then once you've determined these basic facts, then you can look at scriptures and determine maybe is this the, the theistic God of Islam? Is it the theistic God of Christianity? Is it the theistic God of Judaism? And you can then look into the revealed texts and determine something more about God. But it's important to realize that we are not trying to prove these high, lofty theological goals, just these basic tenets, these basic facts about an existent being that we call God. Yeah, essentially we're trying to lay the foundation to evaluate the New Testament and the Christian scriptures. If you evaluate the New Testament on a view that, for example, God doesn't exist and miracles are impossible, you can't even begin to evaluate any of the claims seriously. So the goal of natural theology is merely to lay that groundwork, to establish that there is a powerful creator of the universe that at least opens the door for miracles, which then allows us to evaluate supernatural texts like the Bible in a more balanced manner. 
So we're just going to briefly cover four arguments that these have kind of become the touchstones of really Western philosophy. And as you can imagine, since they've been developed over the past 2,000 or so years, then in a short little podcast like this, we're not going to give an extensive defense of each one of them. This is merely a teaser just to, to let you know where they are and we'll point you to more resources. And future episodes, we'll spend a lot more attention and to give you our thoughts on some of these arguments. Some of them we like, some of them we have a few concerns with, some of them we think are the best in the world. So the first one is really quite simple. This argues just from a fact of the universe to the creator of the universe. And this it's a version of the cosmological argument. Now, a cosmological argument, the word cosmological comes from cosmos, meaning universe. This is a family of arguments. It's not just one single argument, but this is a family of arguments that they take a one fact about the universe, and then they infer something about the creator of the universe. So this one goes something like this. It says, first, that everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Second, the universe began to exist... And then the conclusion is that the universe has a cause. And from there, we can infer that something that would cause the universe would be something very similar to God. It'd have to be transcendent, for example. It would have to be quite powerful. It would have to be something with agency. And those three properties are things that are very consonant with what we think of um, as the traditional doctrine of God. So the next argument is called the moral argument. And it goes something like this. It says, if God does not exist then objective moral values and duties do not exist. However, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, we have to assert that God does exist. Now, this argument is a little bit different than the cosmological argument. Instead of arguing from external features of the universe, we're arguing from a subjective experience of each person that we all experience moral values and duties in our day-to-day life. And basically the argument is saying that if you are an atheist, if you believe that God does not exist, then you don't have any foundation for believing why these moral values and duties do exist. Basically, if these moral values and duties are objective, then they require that God exists to ground their existence. So this third argument goes in a completely different direction from the other two. For the cosmological argument, we're looking at hard facts about the universe. We're looking at cosmogenies. We're looking at the background radiation. We're looking at dating of the universe, things like that. For the moral argument, we're turning to our own experiences and our own interactions with other human beings. But this third argument is what can be considered ivory tower. It bases its entire premise on no evidence and no experience whatsoever. And it's what's called the ontological argument. And this is an example of an argument that is very powerful, it is valid, but most people do not find it persuasive on a personal level. The, the key premise essentially says that if God exists, he is the type of being that would exist necessarily. Or in other words, he would not exist contingently. He wouldn't just happen to exist. If God exists, he is the type of being for which it would be impossible for him to not exist. It simply says that God either exists or he is impossible. And the argument goes something kind of like this. It says that if a maximally great being is possible, then a maximally great being has existence in some possible configuration of the world. So there are different ways that the world could have been. And essentially it says that in order for that being to be the greatest conceivable being, 
the maximally great being, the type of being that God is as a maximally great being, he would have to exist in every single possible configuration of the world. Because a being that existed in one less configuration of the world is obviously not as great as a being that exists in all of them. So a maximally great would exist in all of these. But it all turns on whether or not it's even possible for God to exist, if that's a coherent concept. Because it could be that we're describing something completely different than God, and it could be that God, as a maximally great creator of the universe, is not a coherent concept. Now, if I've lost you in this dense fog of philosophical talk, don't feel alone. Like I said, this is not a very persuasive argument, but it is an extremely intriguing argument. And actually, you know, to my knowledge, there is one person who said that they were persuaded by it. His name was Dougherty, Dr. Dougherty over at Baylor University. He is the one person I know of that might have possibly been convinced by this. Lastly, we have what is perhaps the most famous argument for the existence of God today. It is called the design argument. So the banana argument that Zach discussed earlier is an example of a design argument. However, it's an example of a bad design argument, and there are many, many more bad design arguments than there are good design arguments. But this is an example of what I think is a, a fairly good design argument. It's actually called the fine-tuning of the universe for life. Fine-tuning is basically the fact that when we look at the universe, we see that the universe could have been many different ways. And the vast majority of the possible ways the universe could have been would have been impossible for life. Life could not have possibly existed in these alternative universes. But for some reason, we find ourselves in a universe where life does exist, which is wildly improbable. So the argument goes something like this. The explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe is either design necessity, or chance. However, the fine-tuning of the universe is not due to necessity or chance. Therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to design. Now, to back up this this argument, we have to give additional arguments for why the fine-tuning of the universe is not due to necessity or chance, which I will not here discuss, but in a later episode, we will cover this in more depth. So at the end of the day, what we have is we have a cause of the universe, a ground of morality, a necessarily existent entity that is also the designer of the universe. So whenever we say the term God and people ask us to define what is God, a necessarily existent, morally perfect creator of the universe pretty much encapsulates what we mean by God. Another way you can look at this is Do you think that you could be an atheist and accept that there is a necessarily existent, morally perfect creator of the universe who is the ground of all objective moral values and duties? It seems unlikely. And so that just builds the groundwork. So the point being that these arguments are very old and that these topics are still in discussion today. So we would like to recommend for you, there's a great book called The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. This is pretty much the penultimate book on these four arguments. And there are an additional six arguments that are included in the book. And each chapter takes about 100 pages, and it's written by the leading philosopher in that field. So, for example, the design argument is written by Robin Collins, the ontological argument by Robert Maydahl. These are philosophers who literally dedicated their life work to these arguments. They take about 100 pages, they summarize the argument, and they give sort of a lay of the land. They say where the argument is today, thousands of years later, and in the highest levels of analytic philosophy. Uh, That book is actually available through the Tamu Library. 
However, if you're not a professional philosopher or aspiring to be a professional philosopher and you want some more information on these arguments, a good resource is William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith website. He discusses each of these arguments as well in his podcasts, and you can get a great deal of information that is geared more towards the non-professional philosopher. And that website is reasonablefaith.org. I also think it's important to notice uh, he is so influential. Almost all of these arguments directly follow his formulation. He formulates all of these arguments in a very nice, succinct way, and so we've chosen to use his formulation of them because it's, it's more condensed than what you might otherwise observe. And with that, we will leave you for now, and uh, we'll meet you next week for another episode.